0: The Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that's only here for the likes.
1: Today we have Lindsay and Laura. Today we're spending most of the hour talking with Mackenzie Chin and Van Tran Nguyen who are incredible artists and quickly before we get into our conversation with them Lindsay and I are going to kind of describe our experience with art pretty briefly.
0: I am not at all inclined towards like drawing or painting or any kind of visual art. But um, for undergrad, I majored in, well, one of my majors was creative writing. Mm. And I wrote several short stories that I'm very proud of and lots of poems that I'm also very proud of. And for a while, I definitely consider myself a poet. Wrote a lot of poems in high school, too, and I'm still – I don't know. They're still not trash, which I think is – it says something because – Absolutely. Decent poems in high school, then you've got something going. Yes. Um, (laughs) But since I graduated, I haven't really had – it might be the drive. I I may not – it just might be that I have not had the drive to write poetry. It also may just be that, like, capitalism has crushed my spirit and having to work Mm. for a living has left me with very little time and motivation to pursue art in my free time. Yeah. And um, currently, as a law student, I spend all of my time reading for class and the time that I don't spend reading for class, I'm researching or I am, you know, writing for projects or doing stuff for this podcast. So I don't have a lot of time for artistic pursuits. So one thing that I've started to do just to kind of ground myself is um, I've started carrying around my copy of Teaching My Mother How to Give Birth by and Shire in my backpack mm. so that. If I ever find myself kind of overwhelmed with what I'm reading, or just really bummed out, then you know I, I open the book and I read a poem and I feel something other than completely overwhelmed, and it's just it's a good experience. It's it's great for keeping me sane, and it's nice to have kind of a balance uh, with beautiful things in my life amidst mm-hmm. all of this really dense, really formulaic stuff that I have to do in order to get where I'm going poetry Mm. is Mm. my main form of art and uh, the kind that I think that I appreciate most what about Mm. you Laura
1: (laughs) I'm all over the map I guess but I mostly I guess I mostly identify as a musician Mm mm-hmm I specifically, you know, I have a lot of friends that are much more instrumentally inclined than I am and the people that I generally play with are much more instrumentally inclined than I am and I have often been the songwriter or the, so it, it is its own form of poetry in terms of lyrics, I guess, and
0: very distinct, though.
1: <laughs> yes, it is very distinct. It's very like putting putting that into sound and putting that into creating more feeling, I guess, through that. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, I feel I really identify with what you said. Like you were almost describing poetry as something that's healing for you definitely and I feel that exact same way with music Um, and I've also written some poetry and I felt that way as well but with music in particular because I've had some experience particularly with PTSD I've had Mm -hmm. the chance to write about that experience and uh, write about the experience of having a really foggy brain or a A brain that's unreliable and able to talk about unlearning what my past has taught me Um, and so I feel like it's been my own healing process for similar things that you were talking about but also for my own personal experiences with trauma and then I've also been able to use it as an outlet when political things happen that are really jarring to me. In 2014 there was a the, these this group of men in Los Angeles who started attacking women at, at a frat party because they wouldn't have sex with them good grief and it was and I I'm pretty sure that that one man in particular killed either one or two women I think and it was at a school in Los or in uh, Southern California and then in the same week there were two young women who committed suicide because of slut shaming on the internet (sighs) and I was able to write a song called mad at shitty dudes because I just was so mad at like this dichotomy that was so clearly illustrated in just that week's news cycle of two women committing suicide because they were expressing themselves in and and who knows if they even were right because people get slut shamed even if they're not doing that but even if whatever so like that's regardless of of reality but they were being slut shamed and then at the same time in the same week the there was this intense violence brought against women for not having sex with this man um so it it would that all that to say is that art has been really healing for me in that way absolutely. Well, without further ado, let's get into our interview with Mackenzie Chin and Van Tran Nguyen. Okay, so this week we have two incredible guests with us here, um, two women who have just been really inspiring to me as artists who focus not only on their own existence and their own experiences, but also kind of have a political edge to to the work that they're doing. So I'll let each of them introduce themselves, but we'll start with Mackenzie.
2: Uh, hi. Yes. Um, my name is Mackenzie Chin. Uh, I'm a, a multidisciplinary artist in Chicago, Illinois. Um, primarily, I am an actor and a poet, and the the order that I put those two identifiers uh, in varies uh, day to day. But for the most part, I've uh, you know I've studied acting and I've I've worked professionally in Chicago, um, on stage and screen. But for the past year and a half or so, I've focused um, more strongly on um, writing, particularly poetry, and I uh, currently work with uh, a collective called Growing Concerns Poetry Collective, um, where we fuse um, spoken word, lyrical, narrative, and hip-hop styles of poetry with um, music and soundscape to create something that we think is pretty unique. Uh, and all of the work that we do and that I do individually as a poet uh, kind of centers around um, identity politics, uh, my experience as a Black person and as a woman person, Living in the United States as a older millennial, and uh, it just my experiences through that lens, certainly with a a, a tilt towards um, what justice might look like um, in regards to those identities. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of um that's the kind of performance work that I like to do that I try to seek out and and find as an actor as well. Amazing.
3: yeah, that's beautiful. All right, Van. Hey, guys. so my name is Van Tranullion. I am an artist. Um I started off as a, a biochemist and then I switched over to the arts just due to I think my frustration with um with systems and sciences. So uh I started off as a more traditional artist and then I became a performance artist and looking at ways in which um women and specifically women of color, um, navigate through spaces in spaces that are heavily surveyed and looking at, um, our connections with our, our body, ourselves, our identity, and moving through these spaces. Um, so right now I'm doing my PhD in, um, electronic arts at Rensselaer Polytechnical Institute. And my research is looking at memory ways that we memorialize war through our bodies and how we pass on trauma.
1: Mm. wow and can you explain the electronic arts PhD
3: (laughs) like what is that it's a just a real special thing that you say (laughs) to infuriate your age. (laughs) um so it's actually the degree is a doctoral in the philosophy of electronic arts just to Mm. make it more muddy um and it's essentially it's Pretty open-ended because, like, in, in our department, it ranges from, like, sensorial kind of, like, musicology to, like, autoethnography to, like, just actual dudes playing with noise toys. So we, um, so the philosophy of electronic arts is more or less the ways in which, I guess the ways in which, like, we, it's, we, like, as artists, practice with new media technology and ways that we like use these like tools and media practices in our art practice. So it's, I guess it's a fusion of like media arts practices and I guess like more traditional arts. So it's like, it's a balance or it's an imbalance. It's, you know, I guess I would say that my my work is a little more of an imbalance because I do kind of like diaspora work. Mm. Um, but the work that I do utilizes these tools and kind of like investigates these tools. Like for example, my tool that I investigate is surveillance. So albeit cool. like surveillance cameras. Yeah. So I guess it's a roundabout way of saying like media artists. It's a it's a PhD program more or less for media artists.
1: Very cool. Yeah, that's really interesting. So I kind of wanted to start with this first half, getting to know how each of you use art and and what art has been for you. And then on the second half, we'll kind of have it be more free form. So I, I wanted to start with the question of really openly, what kind of art do you do? what kind of mediums do you use and how do those mediums change the way you can articulate how you're feeling about a given issue or topic or something you're feeling and trying to articulate?
2: Yeah. I mean, as I I think I use, it's, it's funny. I think as an actor, I use myself, you know, myself is my primary, my primary tool, Mm -hmm. uh, as, as a performer and as an actor, I use my body and my voice to help tell a story that either someone else has written or I have written or I've written in concert with other people. But I think more than that, another tool is just my art is my experience. I think a lot of uh, young actors make the mistake of thinking, that um if they you know study hard enough they can become really transformative and and can take on pretty much any role out there and i think a, a lot of us can become quite transformative but i think it's our unique experience and our unique perspective uh, and, and how we feel about the world that we live in and the experiences that we've had that allow us to be, uh, uh that allow us to be as strong artists as we possibly can, which means not every story mm. is for us to tell. Not every role yes. is for us to play. Mm-hmm. And I think I bring a lot of that sensibility to my work as a writer as well. I, I don't, I try not to write about things that I don't really know about. Mm. Right now I'm really interested in investigating a personal, like my, my personal perspective and my personal story. And I think as much as poetry is a tool to, to share, I think it's also a tool in art for me to, um, investigate, uh, inwardly as well. I, I think one of the beautiful things about art, and I think the reason why I practice art is, um, it's a way of reassuring myself and reassuring others that we are not alone in our experience. Mm-hmm. Um, anything that has happened to me or that I feel or that I perceive is shared by other people, um, whether it's one person in the room or a dozen people in the room or everybody in the room, it's it's incredibly shared and we're, we're not alone in our experience as human beings. Um, so I think my primary art is my myself. Absolutely.
1: Um, and before we jump to Van, I just would like to say I had... The incredible opportunity to see Mackenzie's poetry collective live. And when you're in the audience, it's not just that you're listening to poetry, you're engaging with the poets. You're making eye contact. It's a very like personal and connective experience in the, in the way that you were describing. And it is thoroughly one of the best experiences I've had in terms of performance. So it's very special. Thank you so much
3: yeah that's awesome actually so earlier i got to listen to i'm just passing through here and that was really awesome what you uh just said about like utilizing our bodies as ways of like carrying or ways of like materializing our stories like through our bodies which i think is like really beautiful because there's like parts in the song that i think like when you said certain words it like embodied very like visceral memories or even like conjured very like visceral images for me so that was really cool that you that you said that as for me my my art I also believe that like your body is a vessel for for storytelling or your your body is in in a lot of my work and a lot of my performance art I use myself because I am you know I as a like Asian American woman is a charged being so my place in the world or my like actual being like having to actual like reconcile with me and and deal with me while I'm having these experiences or while I'm sharing my performances with people is like really important. Um, as for the tools that I've been using or, or ways that I've been making my art recently, I've been um, using a lot of sound and being very interested in in sound art. And one of them was recently I did this project for a show um, I curated. I co-curated with my friend, Natalie Fleming. It was a show about Asian American identities in the Rust Belt so the piece itself had to do with of modes of survival. So it's this court case that happened in the 1980s where a a Chinese American man was beaten to death because he was mistaken for a Japanese man during this height of racial tension between whites and Japanese Americans when the auto industry was taking over, you know, the international auto industry was taking over and then white people were getting laid off. So these like disgruntled ex-auto workers beat a Chinese man to death because they had assumed that he's Japanese American. So Mm -hmm. I got to look at these archives. So like archives is something that I consider as a tool or as a media of like of my art as well, because I think it's interesting to look at these moments in history and kind of pull from them and see and see the ways that these moments in history embody themselves or em, embody themselves now. Right. So I was lucky enough to to get a hold of those archives um, of Vincent Chin's death and the, the uh, court case, the murder case and then the civil rights case that later came about. So I was like looking at these and I was very interested in in sound and I was interested in language because like his mother was in court a lot on his behalf, obviously. Like so she, he he was her caretaker. So in court, she the, the lawyers are these like, you know, these TV hosts. So they would like interrupt her intermittently at certain parts to like evoke empathy And there was an interesting formula. It was like almost formulaic the way in which they did it. So I was interested in that. And I realized that that's actually something that I do for my mother. So I interrupt her and I kind of kind of correct her English as a mode of survival, just like in the way that we speak Mm -hmm. on a day to day basis. So I was Mm -hmm. looking at sounds and ways that we act out our own survival. On a day to day, kind of like this quotidian rhetoric or quotidian language. And, and so I was interested in that. So I think recently my work has been more about rhetoric and, and archives and kind of looking at sounds and how, how violent language is and how violent wow. sounds are. So, so I've been kind of searching for tools and, and searching for media that I can identify as violence, but also understand that these are this is the violence that we practice on each other as a, as a form of survival.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow. Well,
3: yeah, it's real intense stuff. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> but <It's> so <laughs> fascinating. So fascinating.
3: I know that both of you touched on this, and
0: I don't know, this is probably a naive question, but I've never quite been able to conceptualize or form a definition of what constitutes performance art. Um, I know you've both said that performance art is something that you do, and I'm just wondering if you could, I don't know, maybe define it a little bit or just explain what it means to you or... Or how you do
2: it? It's funny. Like, I, I think I have an understanding of performance art because I know a lot of performance artists, even though I don't, even though I perform and I am an artist, I don't consider myself a performance artist. And, and mm-hmm. that, that's largely because, uh, most of what I do can be easily categorized. Um, when I'm on stage as an actor in a play, I am acting in a play. When I'm on stage with my collective, I am a performance poet. However, I think there are artists whose work defies categorization, but is, Definitely recognizable as an artistic act and is, mm-hmm. uh, and is based in performance. Um, and I, I think Van has probably participated in more work of that nature than, than I have and might be able to give a clearer sense than I could.
3: No, no, I thought that that was actually very clear. Yeah, it's, it's really funny how a lot of performance art gets stuck in identification. So it's like a lot of it is misunderstood as like, well, that's, singing or like close to singing, so we'll call it that, or like that's dancing or close to dancing because it can re- be repeated and choreographed, so we'll call it that. You know, so um, I think performance art was a space created by people that wanted to break from the realms of like, this is structured singing, this is structured mm. dancing. Right. So it was, it's like, you know, something for me and my understanding of it is that it's close enough. And that it has the intention to be one of those like, you know, hardened category that comes from a very strict tradition, you know, and then the the like prime examples of like performance art is like Marina um, Abramovic, you know, so the the -hmm. like the presence, you know, so it's an interaction that has to have an audience and uses the medium of presence in whatever way that means. So a lot of people. That don't consider themselves performance artists, I understand why, because it's such a complicated, loaded thing, and I think they kind of don't want to answer this question. But uh, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 It's totally fine. I'm, I, I get it, you know. So, I, and I, and I, I consider myself, I identify as a performance artist. So I don't really have any qualms with the, with the category. But I, I would understand why a lot of people wouldn't want to identify with it. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And. And yeah, it's, uh, it's essentially a, a practice that you need an audience and you somehow through this art practice, you are using presence as a medium. So your presence, the audience's presence and the in between.
1: Van, can you use your example of
3: the performance you did at the Vietnam Memorial? Oh, sure. Yeah. So last year, I think this, this is a three year old kind of project. So, in the span of 3 years I visited the um Maya Lin's Vietnam War Memorial um in DC. And in this span, I, every time I went to visit it, I would clean a part of it and the my mission was to clean as much as the wall as possible before I got kicked out. So that I then recorded into a video and then whatever audience that was already there to visit the memorial, you know, was already there, so that would be my audience. Mm-hmm. Um So what I wanted to do is I wanted to use myself to do this kind of absurd act of caring for a memorial to kind of define the ways in which we take care of memory or the way that memory doesn't doesn't take care of us. And I wanted to do it because I was kind of angry at this memorial and I kind of wanted to have a very like human interaction with it. But I was angry with it and I also wanted to care for it at the same time because it embodied something that's much larger than me that created part of the trauma that I have to live through as a Vietnamese-American woman. Mm. So, And it was made by a Chinese-American woman, right? But the, the the trouble was is that like it's still kind of caught up in misidentification, right? So she's Chinese-American. But, you know, what a lot of people don't know or a lot of people don't understand is that like China has this very fraught history with Vietnam, and it has actually a very violent history with Vietnam and vice versa. So, you know, this kind of like tensionality between myself and the maker and the memory that she's trying to conjure. So I went and I, I cleaned this wall as this kind of act of caring. And that was part of one of my performances that was shown um, at my solo show last year or the, earlier this year. So that's performance art in that I was acting or I was performing this labor and it was my presence and the presence of the people around me that um, created this like tension or created this relationship between the viewer and the performer. And so, so I guess that was more or less an example of, of my use of performance art. Absolutely. It seems pretty clear to me. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and it's interesting if you ever watch that video of Van doing this, it, you see the people who are there visiting the memorial, like looking at her, like, what the hell <laughs> are you doing? And yeah. I think that that is in some ways the point is like she made them look deeper in some ways uh, where they had to kind of question like what they were doing there because of her performance.
3: Yeah, like, Mm -hmm. is is it any more absurd to, like, go there and take, like, a rubbing of a name than to go there to clean it? Like, is Mm -hmm. it any more absurd? Like, so I guess I wanted to question, like, what is a memorial? What is our relationship with it? And memorials aren't memories. And they're not history. They're historical. Like, it's, like, we have this, like, idea that memorials are kind of this, like, neutered history event. And, like, you know, obviously... In current understandings of it, right? And then in current, like, really great subversive acts against some, mm-hmm. um, we know that they're not. So I, I kind of wanted to do something that was, like, subversive and not necessarily violent, but mm. something that was, that, like, made people kind of question, well, who the hell is it for? And, and who the hell, why the hell am I cleaning it? And, like, why am I taking care of it? Right? Like, taking care of it is, like, just as ridiculous as, like, anything else you could do to it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you.
1: So because we here on Season of the Bitch are all women identified people and we kind of carved this little space in the leftist podcast community because we felt like there was a little bit of a void or there was just a lot of really male dominated voices in the podcast realm. And so I think for us, it would be really interesting to hear if the two of you could describe how being a woman has influenced your art and whether that kind of maybe describe in what ways that has formed how you're making art, if it does. And then if you also want to describe like any other identifiers, like, whether it's being a Vietnamese American or about being a woman of color, um, whether that influences your way that you make art.
2: It's funny. I I think what I, I first realized that I wanted to be some kind of artist that I that I had things I wanted to communicate it through an artistic lens i I don't think I really thought about uh, identity very much because it was just like it was just kind of um, m- m- st- my truth. And so it just be it was kind of invisible. I just I'm, re- I'm in the middle of reading um Ta-Nehisi Coates' new book. We were 8 years in power. And he has this wonderful uh, um, essay on Michelle Obama and uh, how she was raised mm. in a you know, two-parent household in South Shore, which is a neighborhood in the South on the South Side of Chicago, and how that was just the truth of her upbringing and and for a lot of other people in her, you know, immediate neighborhood and 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 world. And so it's a and it's similarly, I think I went about a lot of my life just oh, obviously aware of my identity as a black person and as a woman, but also just kind of not it didn't seem exceptional. It didn't seem mm. outside of the norm. Um, until mm. I say until I think I moved to Chicago, which is a, a fantastic city and a city that I now call home, um, but is is far more segregated than any other place I've ever experienced. Mm. Um and so I'm I think living here has made me hyper aware of my identities and how it might shift the way people perceive me in ways that I never was before uh, moving here. And it's kind of a, it's kind of a blessing and a curse because I think it has just given me a lot to, I mean, you know, discrimination is not fun, obviously, but I think it's given me my way of pushing back against it is is by writing about it and by seeking out media and plays and and video uh projects that that are that that's my way of pushing back against it. So it's given me a lot to write about. It's given me a lot to do and it's given me a lot I think to celebrate in ways that I would not have thought to celebrate those things about me before because mm. it didn't it didn't seem it didn't seem special. <laughs> but I I think becoming more aware of those things of those elements of my identity has helped me. <laughs> it's, it's, it's weird because it's, I, I write so much about, mm. about those elements of my identity. And I sometimes worry that there are other things that I'm not giving, uh, giving time or attention to. Like I want to be able to write about, just, you know, having this uh, I was in California earlier this year and I had a tangerine that was the best tangerine I'd ever had in my whole yes. life. <laughs> like like the Midwest knows nothing about fruit. Like, oh <laughs> good God. Like I just like I almost cried eating this tangerine and I thought I want I want to write about the experience of eating this tangerine and I want to just it for it to just be about that and the beauty mm. of that experience. Mm. Um and but right now be, I think in part because of the my own recognition of my identities and celebration of my identities and also because I think because of the tenor of the world that we live in now it does not feel like enough to just write about what it's like to eat a particularly delicious piece of fruit without it being um somehow a metaphor for something larger mm-hmm. you know it just doesn't seem like right. enough um, so it's it's something that I, I celebrate and that I love to celebrate, but it's also something that I wonder if I'm um,
3: kind of cornered by at the same time. Mm. Yeah, that's actually a very, a very, um, really, really interesting point that you bring up in that, like, as a woman or as specifically a woman of color, everything you do is charged. And it seems like there's um, only kind of like a lens that it can be seen through. And I think that that's, I don't know. I, I think that that's like, that's a burden, right? Like that's a like a mm. massive burden. Mm-hmm. And I think about this a lot where when I want to just make work, that's either quirky or just ridiculous for the okay. sake of making it. Um, and I think like, well, in a time like this, is it helpful to be making that? Is it productive to be making that? Mm. And I think about like how poisonous that is to mm. myself. Like, to constantly have to question my productivity and to ha- constantly have to like question or check in on my body. If my body is saying this thing, even if my body does feel genuinely like I'm just happy to eat this fruit, right? So it's like, I, I, I don't know. I don't like disavow or like not value the product of like that sincere kind of emotion because we're multifaceted beings, hmm. right? And I think that we fall trapped to like, needing to produce things that are subversive or needing to produce things that are like these like very loaded things there's a really great I'm, I might be getting off track but there's a really great like uh artist statement or or this like press release that Kara Walker released um mm. I think a few months ago I don't know if you've got to read it it's pretty freaking brilliant because she just like goes out and just says I'm gonna make art And it's this like absurd thing that I'm going to do. And you're going to read really like deeply into it. And it's going to be too much for you. But frankly (laughs) speaking, it will be paint on a paper. Get over yourself. I love that. Like, and then like, you know, it didn't do well because everyone hated that so much because they expected her to do this like uber political thing. They expected her to carry Mm. the weight of all of these people. And she said, Mm. no, like, she's like, screw you. I'm going to make art. I'm going to put pen on a paper and you're just going to have to figure it out. It's not my burden to carry the past. It's not my burden to make these like subversive art all the time. I'm tired and I want to just create. Is that okay with you? Like, I just really like, it's just beautiful, right? Cause she's just like, screw you. I don't owe you anything. I don't owe the world an explanation or a get out of jail card for the shit that we have to live in. That's not my burden. And I, I think, and I think about that like all the time, right? Like I just like well, I'm so tired of like having to have to situate myself, and and it's depressing enough that I like you know we I teach students in this like Trumpian society, it's like you know like we're in a shit storm. So you, you start, <laughs> yes, in this hellscape, mm-hmm. and you have to keep on thinking about it and like positioning yourself over and over and over again. Yes. But it's like sometimes it's just kind of nice to make things that are like simple and quotidian. Damn it. White men do it all the time. Like, <laughs> why, like, I, you know what I mean? Like, why the hell can't I, I'm going to do this. Like, and, and I owe nothing to the world. I don't owe an explanation as to why I have to make this. And you can read as far as you want into it. But frankly speaking, it came from my body. So whatever my body produced, you will take. And I, and I just kind of like that statement from her like that, you know, so I, that's what I have to say to that.
1: What what Van hasn't really led on to is that she's also hilarious. And <laughs> she's made some really funny art of like goofily figuring out how sex works through art. Yeah. Um and that has been really brilliant art that I've seen. And then I've also seen like you're obviously brilliant work that comes from like that's charged with being a Vietnamese American woman. So I know that you have both of those sides in you, too, that you're like probably struggling with on a pretty regular basis.
3: Yeah, I think for a while I was like trying to find the balance between like the art that I was making for me so that I could survive and like still enjoy making it. Right. Because sometimes I just want to paint like naked people because I think sometimes naked people look funny. And (laughs) what's wrong with that? Or, like, sometimes I just want to do something that's, like, very quirky and ridiculous. And that's just, like, for my own sanity. And I figured, like, why not? And I was, like, for a long time, I was, like, trying to find this balance of how one can enrich the other. And I think I came into a point where I said, fuck it. I'm not, I don't need to find a balance. Like, there are plenty of successful artists or plenty of very successful, specifically women artists, that kind of never really needed to find a balance. Like they just made these things and they made their audience reconcile with these things, right? Like, so I, I think I just kind of came to a point where I was like, I don't need to do this. It's not, I don't know, like it's not productive to keep on having to, to rack my brain on to like, and to create this like symmetry of like my actual personality and things that I want to do and the things that I feel like I need to do.
2: Absolutely. One of the last projects that I did on stage uh, was um, a new play by a Chicago playwright, Ike Holter called Lottery Day. And um, there was, to me... Uh, I guess nothing overtly political about the play. We didn't mm-hmm. talk about presidents. There were no jabs at Trump. There, you know, it was, it was very much about these people in this space experiencing this, this thing together. There was, um, I rather enjoyed the fact that the play had like a token white character, like everybody else on the, yeah. in the play, like a, a 10 or 12 uh, person cast, uh, was a person of color. Uh, and there was, you know, one white person. And I think just, to have a story about these people living in this space, just living their lives the normal way they live. And like, I don't wake up and think, Oh, I'm black today. Now I'm going to go do things according to that fact. Yeah. You, you
3: know, know? Yeah. I
2: live my life just like anybody else does. And I think obviously my identities have a, you know, uh, have an effect on what my experience is of that day. Um, but it is not, it, it's not. The baseline, and I think just the the fact of having those characters behaving truthfully, um, having this you know this experience was um, at once quotidian and and ordinary in a really beautiful way that I loved, but in and of itself was was political. The fact mm-hmm. that. We made people sit in a room and watch people who probably a lot of people don't, some people in the audience maybe don't, you know, interact with people who don't look like them very often. We, they sat in a room and they watched these people living their very ordinary, well, on you know, in, in a play, it's every, in a play, what you experience is extraordinary, but right. just having that experience. And I think as quotidian as it it kind of was in an overt sense, it couldn't help but be political in, in that way.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Totally. I, and I also like, I mean, there's a, the book that you said that you were reading by Tan yeah, Taniki. Yes. yes. So there is a really great article recently in the Atlantic, and I think it's an excerpt from that book where he's talking about Trump and the, like, and he, it's called like the first white president. The first white or, president, yes. Yeah. So I'm reading, and I think it's actually pretty brilliant so far. And I think that that's something that we kind of, maybe don't talk about as often is that like you know people of color seem to like have this assumption where people are like oh we only like when you see things through the lens of people of color there's like a certain way or a charged matter of how people of color uh see life or like you know whatever and that's to that to me is very fascinating because the i the article in which i'm reading it just like it seems to me that like we forgot that white people are very charged matter as well. (laughs) Right. And And are a thing and not standard. Yeah, Yeah. whiteness is a charged being. And like seeing Mm. life through whiteness is a very charged Mm. affect as well. Right. So, so I think like it, it doesn't, it gives way too much agency to difference. Right. Or like Mm. this, uh, like, I mean, in, in my opinion, it's like, it gives too much agency to like orientalizing or whatever. It's like, well, what about, what about like this thing that has been considered neutral, like this neutral state of whiteness? There's no neutrality in it. So I think that like it's it points out very well, like, you know, kind of like this multifaceted or radial kind of like agency. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs>
1: I am. Um... <laughs> I, I know this is painful for me to do. I want us to take a quick break and listen to I Am Only Passing Through Here. This is an incredible conversation and we're going to come back to it. Um, but I want to kind of have this at least at least mildly in the middle of our conversation. So without further ado, this is I Am Only Passing Through Here by Growing P- Concerns Poetry Collective. Mm-hmm.
2: My mother forged me in the crucible that is the womb of all black women. I glow like a saint from oils rubbed into my skin by generations of these old women. Their knotted hands push me forward from the coasts of a whole other continent. Antebellum aunties, panther priestesses, I stride a reluctant light. the times I fell. I am the breath that fled my lungs when the water almost took me, a hard palm to the heart, a calcification, a callus that lets me do the day's work with no pain. I am the back muscle I didn't even know I had, flexed, sprung to life when I climbed the thing they told me not to climb. I am a tear, a mend, a new strength, but I am also soft. In me is the sorority of the shadows cast on my sister's wall, all the monsters I escaped for every night she let me sleep in her bed instead of my own. Two black girl sisters, growing tall into the jaws of all this world, sisters, arms lifted to keep the jaws from snapping shut, sisters. I'm only passing through here but like a dragonfly the light from the sun having traveled 93 million miles just to be an iridescence on my wing the only thing better than a dress with pockets is a dress with wings and all my dresses have wings they are made of sugar cane, cotton and tobacco leaf smell of lavender and cocoa butter, of pork chops and pound cake on Sundays. They are moon rays made solid, are the way my mother said my name when she found where I had written my name on her good, clean walls. They are my name. They are my name thrown up on the side of a public building in green and pink and blue and gray and white that can't be buffed. My name a conjuring, my name spoken by God on my arrival. And by God, I mean the delicate shadows beneath eyes upon waking by God I mean the misty mirror reflection after the shower that made you new by God I mean you by God I mean the joint you and your tribe passed around last moonless night I mean a moan in my ear a shadow across the floor I mean the last song you sang only for yourself by God I mean your body and how come what may its good persists of the place you call home, where home is your body, the soft inner elbow and its veins, a blue river filled with fish on a cloudless day, the soft of your tongue and the stories it could tell, the sweet of your darkest places, I am passing through here, hope on the lips of saints, and by saints I mean the queer, by saints I mean the ill, by saints I mean the 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 black, the femme The beaten, the silenced, the unmourned Those who would tunnel and climb if only to live <laughs> i wrote i'm only passing through here earlier this year uh it was it was a kind of a commission i was invited by my friend joe Verisco to perform as a part of an event for an an exhibit which was at the alpha wood gallery earlier this year called art AIDS America. It was actually a traveling exhibit and was uh, making its um, final stop in Chicago. I think it's final stop in Chicago. Uh, and I, I remember being very trepidatious about the invitation because the, the exhibit was very much about the experience of people who are uh, HIV positive living through the AIDS epidemic and what it's like for them to live in, in the world, uh, and in the country now in terms of where we are with the, with the epidemic. Uh, and I am not HIV positive. There were also a, a, quite a few queer artists in the, uh, in the exhibit. Um, and I don't identify as queer. And so I, really wondered whether I was the right person to offer my thoughts and words and art to that space.
3: Um, And
2: I, I, you know, I remember sitting down with Joe to, to talk about that because I really wanted to honor what, uh, what that exhibit was, was trying to do and the the visibility that it was, it was kind of going for. And so we decided uh, after that conversation, I decided that my voice is an ally and as someone who is, has kind of open arms to, to witness and receive what that experience is and to understand the truth of that experience was was kind of where I needed to come from mm-hmm. in in regards to writing something for that. And so then um, I said earlier that I, I took a trip to California earlier this year and I wrote this poem while I was in in California, which I guess is only significant because I, I love California so much. There's never a time I don't I, I'm, I love living in Chicago. There's never a time where I don't just want to like be in California, like just to exist. <laughs> in mm-hmm. the media of California. And it, it took me several days to write. And I, I think I just really leaned into a lot of the imagery of my, of my own experience. Um, again, even though I'm uh, not a queer artist, I'm not HIV positive, I think I was striving to find what it is to be faced with something that others might perceive as an obstacle. Hmm. um and that and that certainly I have to you know incorporate and and think about in my in my daily existence, but that is like a, a testament to my um resilience and and spirit, and I just kind of leaned into that idea, and these were the images a lot of what is in the poem were the images that um that kind of came out of my uh my pen as I was writing. Um, Mm. I try to, in my writing, I do try to be as specific as possible. I think general, like I I try not to work too much in generality because I don't think that's very potent. Um, and so, but I knew I needed to come from a place of my own experience and hope that it, it found some resonance in the experiences of the people whose work was on exhibit, uh, in Art AIDS America. Mm.
1: Yeah, this piece is unbelievably moving. I mean, all of your pieces are. And while I could literally go line by (laughs) by line in this and be like, this is my favorite part. No, this is my favorite part. Um, and I feel like probably based on the minute or the day, uh, that would probably be a little different. And right now, the piece that sticks out to me so much, is the part that's like and by god i mean where you're kind of describing what god is to you in these very specific but also so subversive and beautiful and oh. it's what uh, another theme that i've found in most of your pieces um that i actually was thinking about bringing up earlier is this idea of radical love and radical mm-hmm. acceptance and you know, you have a line in another piece that's talking about um, overhearing your roommate uh, having sex and just like that being a really beautiful thing for you and not an embarrassing moment or anything that could be construed in however it could be construed in our society. And you just kind of come with this radical openness to loving one another. And I that I feel like really permeates through this
2: whole song. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I think something I've been really fascinated by uh, in my writing recently is rediscovering and redefining what is holy and what is considered holy. I grew up very religious in like a very religious community and went to Catholic school most of my life. And so, uh, what I grew up with was very, very specific ideas of what was holy and very, very specific ideas of what was bad and wrong and unholy and sinful. And I've evolved quite a bit um, from from (laughs) those days and so but there's still there will always I think be a part of me that holds like the that ideas of what is sacred and practices of ritual that will they will always like live inside of me in a really strong way um but of course as as an artist and and as a progressive artist in in the larger world i have come to recognize um a great many things as as sacred and as holy particularly things that um i think more traditional religions say are are the opposite of that and i remember being in like a like a bar or something and going to the bathroom and I greatly, greatly enjoy bathroom stall graffiti. It's just, yes. one of, I it's mm-hmm. just, I think it's an art. I just, I think it's, it's really fascinating and always interesting. And I remember uh, seeing inside of the stall I was in, um, someone had written your body is a good body. And mm-hmm. I, just, even thinking about it now, it just, it, it's just really touching and moving to me because I think, Oh, gosh, it's just not even as women, just people as people in the world. We're given these uh, impossible standards to live up to. I mean, you know, there's countless um, conversations and, and podcasts and articles written about that. But I think we internalize so deeply in ways that we probably aren't even aware. Ways that our bodies are not are not good. And and I remember just thinking about writing this piece specifically for this exhibit. In just kind of trying to imagine what it must be like to have a body that you can't always rely on or for yeah. anybody with any kind of um, uh, illness uh, or chronic illness to have a body that they feel like they can't always rely on. But that like it's just it's the body that you have and you are in it and it, um, it may not serve you in all the ways you want it to serve you all the time. But it's still ultimately good and and holy. I think Mm. the body is, is a a remarkable, um, tool and way we have of communicating and expressing. And, um, and I think the religion I grew up with would not find that to be, would not say that that's true. But I, I, that is something that I, that has become a a foundational, um, kind of element of my own kind of way of believing. Incredible.
1: Yeah. That's, I'm actually thinking like, (sighs) We talk a lot about, um, you know, different socialist issues uh, a lot. And it, when you take this specific idea of the body and and having a chronic illness that affects your body in such intense and unpredictable ways, the idea of having a, such a precarious healthcare system as a oh. backdrop of that, is so, it like almost amplifies how beautiful it is that you're valuing that body because in this current space, it's like often people who have a really precarious healthcare situation often aren't fully employed. So they often don't have access to healthcare. And, and so they're just in this like, like cycle of precarity. And mm. to just kind of stop that cycle in its tracks to validate the beauty that still exists there is like more beautiful than, you know, I feel like if we lived in a more utopian society where we could all get the health care and access that we need, maybe we would feel a little more com- confident and comfortable in our bodies, even when we're sick. Um mm-hmm. And there wouldn't be this shame surrounding it. Right um but to kind of break down past that like larger issue too to be like i still value the body i still value this as sacred and holy absolutely
2: absolutely i think the uh, the other thing that i think really when i perform this poem with growing concerns it's it's one of my favorite <laughs> it's one of my favorite poems to perform particularly because i just i like the idea of uh just there's a there's a line that um that I that I enjoy like it's weird to be like I love this poem that I wrote um <laughs> but, uh, there's a, a particular line that um that I always love sharing and that's the light from the sun having traveled 93 million miles just to be an iridescence on my wing mm-hmm.
3: that
2: there are so many people in the world right like something like seven billion people in the world um but that we are all so incredibly worthy of every good thing in love and health um, and companionship and joy as we're, we're all so worthy of all of it. Um, And I think it's, it's, it's easy to forget that because there's just so many people with so many incredible needs. Yeah. But that we're, that we truly are deserving of that much of, of that level of, yeah, of 93 million miles of travel by lights to just, just, to be upon you. Yeah.
0: I loved the part where you talk about God as well. That was, I started getting chills from the very beginning of the poem, but I was just like, I was very aware of them at that part. Like it was so beautiful and I got a little bit choked up, um, which is how I know that I'm listening to a good poem. If I get chills and feel a lump in my throat. Um, But I, also really loved the part where you're talking about your name and Mm. I don't know just amplifying it um and publicizing it and I don't know being proud of it I don't even have anything to say (laughs) about it but it just it felt so like beautiful to um I mean it feels really self celebratory Mm. in a way that I think a lot of people consider vanity but it's It's really beautiful to, I don't know, do it in a way that it legitimately feels like art rather than
2: self-congratulation. It's empowering. I'm so glad. Yeah,
0: it was so beautiful. I'm (laughs) glad that
2: it uh, lands that way. Um, So one of, uh, like, my personal patron saint um, is Solange. And (laughs) uh, she, Mm -hmm. she wrote this amazing letter a few months ago. I think it was a letter to her
3: like an open letter to her younger self. Mm, um, yeah. In, in like Teen Vogue or something. Yes. Right? yes. Teen yeah. Vogue yeah. Yep, like so on good. fire right now. Oh my yeah. God. <laughs> well, shout out me. Teen Vogue. Oh my yeah, God. Yeah. Teen Vogue's killing it recently. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Um, well, their, their editor is like bomb.
2: Yes, yes. Yes. She's, she's amazing.
3: Um,
2: but there's, uh, there's just one part of the letter where, um, I, I, am I'm, I'm gonna paraphrase it. Um, but she talks about other people, you know, being named and other people having names for you or other people maybe calling you names, but that there comes a day when you name yourself. And, uh, that really resonated and landed on me really, really strongly. Um, because I think, um, a, a big part of really, uh, devoting myself to poetry as a form and I still struggle to call myself a poet because I read so many amazing poets and read so much amazing poetry that it feels like, oh, am I allowed? to? Have I earned? Have I earned this title? But part of my um, setting myself to to become that, to become a poet and be a poet has been um, about. Claiming my own identity as, as my own and it not needing to fall in line with anything that has, um, come before me. I can, um, be black in the way that it means to be black for me. I can be a woman in the way that it means to be a woman for me. I can be a millennial. I can be a Chicagoan. Uh, I can, I can be all of these things in a way that feels, um, truthful to me. And I think it's about what what I call myself right calling mm-hmm. like calling myself a poet feels like a big deal like the day when I you know I've lived in Chicago for nine years like the day where I decided that I was a Chicago Chicagoan like calling myself that mm-hmm. um, or even just like my name which I you know I hated growing up I thought it was stupidest name um, I tried to change it to Glenda when I was five because mm-hmm. I love the Wizard of i tried to change my name a number of times as a child um and i remember the day when i decided that like Mackenzie was a fucking great name um hell yeah and i think just it it is a remarkable thing to just claim who you are um or even if that means claiming something else i have great friends who have I only know them by the names they've given themselves, but the names they've given themselves have allowed them to like stand in, in a measure of power and truth that, um, that they maybe weren't able to before.
1: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. that's awesome. And, and in the same vein, you start your poem with that lineage and with that ancestry of like yeah. in the crucible, that is the womb of all black women. And I love that you start from that place and then can still grow into this I am myself, I am my own unique individual, um, and I, I can call myself by my name.
2: And it also, you know, it's funny, that makes me, uh, that reminds me of something that um, Van said uh, towards uh, when we first uh, started our conversation about um, your work exploring how, I think it was how memory lives in our bodies and how we pass down memory, which yeah. is such a fascinating concept for me because it, there's been a study that's been going on for several years about how, are the memories and the experiences, particularly the trauma of of uh, of our forebears, like gets imprinted literally in their genetic structure, and mm-hmm. so it gets passed down generation to generation. Which I think has enormous implications for groups of people who have experienced widespread trauma: Jews who have um, who have family members who survived the Holocaust, um, Black Americans who have um, ancestors who were who were who were part of slavery. Um, mm-hmm. All of these groups who have experience like this kind of trauma like that science implies that it literally lives in us yeah. um and I, it's just i'm i'm i cannot wait for more research <laughs> to be done on that because i i think i don't know it just has huge implications on i think how we experience how these groups in particular um experience um the world based on literally what is in our genes
3: yeah yeah like it's um well this is i don't know if it's like necessarily considered like yeah i don't know if it's like a hard science for me but i'm usually right about um uh, trickle down trauma like uh, mm-hmm. and and specifically uh looking at like ways that we pass on wars to our children even in like very simple kind of like day-to-day life and and or like very like i did this project where I um, looked at the way that my mom said, I love you as like a, as a weapon or Mm. like, or ways that we teach our children how to cook as like, not necessarily a mode of survival, but like a mode of resistance or something like that. So like, just the, just the normal kind of everyday way that we pass on our trauma and like, Mm-hmm. We pass on our, our like calloused over wounds to our children and how they reconcile with it. And, and yeah, I'm, I, yeah, I think that the first, um, the first paragraph of your poem was very, to me, it resonated because it, it's like this very gorgeous, tactile, like from oils rubbed onto my skin. And like these women and the, the knots and the, you know, and the ways that like we embody all of the women that we've ever known and loved. Mm. And I think that that's gorgeous. Um, and yeah, I, your work is beautiful and I'm, yeah, yeah I'm obsessed with this poem. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. We can all be obsessed with it. Yes. Yeah. Perfect. And, and I am definitely like team Solange and Beyonce. Yes. Two of <laughs> <a> fault. Two of <laughs> fault. Yeah. I think Laura knows my like love for Beyonce and my like, very. It's actually. I should, probably shouldn't admit this, but I like don't trust people that don't like Beyonce. <laughs> I just don't trust them. You're, I don't think they I don't trust part people.
2: people. Part of the Bay agency yes.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just like. I just like. Yeah, part of the Bayhive. I just don't believe that you can go through life without liking Beyonce, <laughs> or like a very well lived life. Yeah. She's my lifeblood.
1: <laughs> I mean, I think. I think a healthy dose of skepticism is is really good there. <laughs> Oh yeah,
3: totally. I mean, it is, but I mean, also blind faith is fine too.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what's funny is that, like, I so I was I was a late comer to 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 the Beyhive. I yeah. kind of got on board uh, with her 2014 album, the self-titled Beyonce, oh. which to me I think was in regards to the conversation we've been having was the first time I think I'd really heard her musically stand in like all the different aspects of her identity and like, let them contradict one another and Mm -hmm. let them like parallel or support one another. And I was so Mm -hmm. here for it. Like she could talk about like the raunchiest, nastiest like back of a, you know, back limo, like, um, like, you know, come on your dress, like, (laughs) and then talk about, A miscarriage, you know, and that Mm. both those things can be 100% true.
3: Totally. Yeah,
2: that that was. That's when I was like, okay, I'm I'm here for it. I I hear you. I see you. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think also it's just maybe just like a quick aside. I the first music video I ever saw uh, when I came to America was. Brandy and Monica's The Boy Is (laughs) Mine. Yes. (laughs) The first music video I ever watched, period. So unfortunately, it is a video in which women are taught to be in competition with each other, which is Mm. horrible. However, it was like, uh, it was like the first time where I saw like these women performing these kind of very weird, like, I don't even know what it is. It's just like, yeah, performing these like contradictions for each other and to each other. That I'm like, this is like mm-hmm. really brilliant. And then I think like that since then has like molded the way in which I like value media. I don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So then like when I was like looking at Beyonce, I'm like, oh, this is like for me comfortable. Like this is what I remembered formulating what I think is aesthetically beautiful or what I think is like, a, a, like sonically beautiful right like so like this kind of like this tension or like this like duality i like really really like and and something that i like uh am attracted to i mean and i like still listen to lemonade every day of my life <laughs> because
0: oh my god and can we talk about how and wrote the screenplay for it because worsen uh, is my favorite poet could, of all i time. did not know
3: that Yeah. It's, yeah yeah it's Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. I would drive to my partner's house like sweating and angry and uh, we're not fighting. We're fine. And he'd be like, did you listen to Lemonade on the way here? And I said, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I'm angry at you because, yes, I listened to Lemonade on my way here. (laughs) That's amazing. We are unfortunately
1: out of time, Ah. which is wild. This went by so fast. And I do want to give each of you the opportunity to say anything you want as a kind of closing little thing or not, whatever you
2: want. Um. Oh, sure. Um, well, I've talked a lot about my collective growing concerns, poetry collective, and we've recorded our very first album uh, in, uh, in July of this year. And it can be found on Spotify and SoundCloud and Bandcamp. It's called we here. Thank you for noticing. And um, the thing that I'm really excited about right now, well, two things I'm going to be in DC for November and all of December. I'm um, doing a brand new play. At Willie Mammoth Theater Company um, with Felonious Monk, um, mm-hmm. the the comic and, and all around fantastic person. Um, it's called Nothing to Lose but Our Chains. Um, so if you're in DC, please oh come God. say hi to me. And uh, and then after that, my collective uh, we will be publishing our first book. <laughs> so um, no yeah. rest for the no rest for the weary, no rest for the wicked. Um, yeah, that's
3: what I've got going on. I'm so excited for that. Okay, cool. So, I am not working on any large projects right now. I am ha- just working on my PhD, unfortunately. You're so just be- working on your PhD. <laughs> how dare you? Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> so I'll be reading till the end of time. But you can check out my art and my work. It will be, uh, my website will be updated soon, but right now it's www.vantranuyan.com um my work is there it will be updated soon with um a few literary projects that i will be working on hopefully i will be publishing soon uh, it's about a piece that i wrote in response to the ken burns documentary about the vietnam war right now it's called eat me ken burns it will definitely change through publishing <laughs> so um yeah so it's that's where my work is going now and uh, uh I uh, am so, so psyched to have had this really great conversation with you ladies. Oh,
1: yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you both so much. And um, we will hopefully connect with you both soon. Fantastic. Thank you. Wow. I am so incredibly moved and grateful to have had Mackenzie and Van with us. Thank you to brilliant women everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so we have some really exciting news, dun, 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 dun. which hopefully if you listen to this podcast regularly, you're already aware of because by the time this comes out, if you're receiving this into your ears on the regular day on Friday, November 3rd, then tomorrow uh, we have a live show. If it, if you're a Patreon supporter, it will be two days from now, but it gives you time to get a plane ticket. Yes. So much time. So much time. And yeah, we hope you'll join us. We're having a live show. What the heck? With our friend from the Trailbellies, And we're going to do some really weird shit like raise Margaret Thatcher and Nancy Reagan from the dead. Uh (laughs) Real live ghosts. Yeah, it's going to be real cool. And then we'll be our favorite teen witches or just witches in general. And oh, so the details are it's November 4th, 6 to 8 p.m. central time in Chicago at the township. And the recording will be available for all of our Patreon supporters. So if you've been waiting to be a Patreon supporter, now is your chance. And if you're in town, um, come. There's a way to RSVP online, which we will link in the description here. And you can pay at the door, but your RSVP will save you a spot. We also have tickets
0: available on Eventbrite and uh, I think you can also, yeah, you can RSVP on Facebook.
1: (laughs) Yay. Come have a beer with us. (laughs) Getting weird with the coven. (laughs) All right. Well, I think that is all for today. Oh, yeah. Uh, Rate, review, subscribe on iTunes
0: and uh, follow us at Season of the Bee on twitter and instagram uh send us your music or hell your spoken word poetry um at season at gmail.com and uh give us your money on
1: patreon
2: yeah
1: okay well we'll catch you later bye lindsay
0: bye laura love you love you
3: it is <laughs>
2: bitch